This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Brittany Edmonds, and I'm very happy to be speaking with Tina Post today, whose new book, Deadpan, will be the topic of our discussion. Um, Thank you for being here today, Tina. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I wanted to start with just, you know, because this is the first book, I wonder if you could talk to us a bit about the process of turning your dissertation into, you know, a scholarly monograph. Did the arguments change? Did the objects examined change? Did the... I don't know. Did anything change? I'm sure something changed. So could you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah, it ended up actually um, quite a bit changed, not so much in the um, conceptual framing, which remained consistent, but in terms of um, the, uh, I'll say the arc of the argument, maybe. Um, Right. So um, the dissertation was also five chapters, um, but the book is chapter one is a uh, totally different. Uh, the it, in both cases it was a chapter that dealt with um, portraiture and um, sort of the most literal instances of an inexpressive face. But the sample set really changed. The argumentative stakes a- around that particular nugget change, which I'm happy to get into later if it's interesting. Um, the second chapter remained mostly the same. The third is totally new. Um, the fourth changed some. The fifth is mostly the same. And then the introduction is totally new. So um, what that was about, there were a couple of places where, um, and these were around minimalism, Black Threat, and Buster Keaton, where um, I was pretty certain that those argumentative moments had landed pretty well. The chapter on theatrical production, um, it the it remains, in both cases, it was a chapter about theater and excessive blackness, stereotypical blackness, and the kinds of evacuation that can happen strategically through that. But I do think that the argument clarified in the historical buttressing of uh, certain visualities also increased. Um, the biggest change, and and this is sort of the most instrumental advice, the biggest changes were um, around the introduction when I had the really helpful advice from Shane Vogel, who's one of the series editors. There was a reminder that many, many people only ever read the introduction of the book and maybe one other chapter if they need to. But really, you want your introduction to encapsulate your arguments in a really... Um, conveniently exportable way so that, if, so that if no one so it's not just that you like allude to what you're going to do later or that you 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 make the first sliver of the bigger thing but that really the introduction contains in microcosm the entire thing um so that was the biggest change um 
in many ways. And, and it's really hard to do until everything else is pretty set. Right. So, so, um, that was, that was the biggest change. I was lucky in so far as my, um, PhD advisor, who was Joe Roach, um, was already, he already gave permission for us to make our dissertations as close to a book as possible, which is to say, a change that many people have to make is reframing their dissertations from a work that primarily demonstrates for the sake of their committee, the knowledge that they've built up, and then they have to shift in the course of book editing into something that um, then positions themselves as the expert and, and has a pedagogical relation to the reader. And, um, and, Joe really gave us permission. I think all of the students, he says, why wouldn't you make your decision as close to your book as you can? But he really gave us permission to, um, from the get-go, occupy a more pedagogical um, stance and not um, and not the stance of the supplicant, <laughs> which should make the, ed- the editing a little bit easier in the end. Um, so I was lucky in that way. But um, yeah. Well, thank you for that, that wonderfully expansive answer. I mean, I'm sure it's going to be helpful to a lot of listeners. I mean, you really kind of demystified the process um, that you went, you underwent for your own book. And, and I know that'll be useful to other folks. I'm curious about how you sort of arrived at the concept. I mean, I know you didn't come up with this concept, but the interest in deadpan, I'll say. And I'm curious about it because I'm curious about where we might find it. You know, I know this is a performance studies book, and I kept thinking throughout this, throughout sort of reading and engaging with it about whether or not there is possible to think about deadpan, you know, on the page or something, right? Or in painting or, you know, just these other sort of media, where where else might you see it? But I'm curious about just how you came to deadpan, about where we find it, and why it's a useful category to think through in cultural production, especially Black cultural production. Right, great. Um, yeah, let me, uh, maybe I'll back up a tiny bit and, and say a little bit more about what I mean by deadpan, which um, etymologically, uh, it's literally dead face. Pan was a slang for face. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to have come out of vaudeville. Um, but I, as I say in the book, in a, in a brief uh, sort of historically rooted anecdote, um, there might be some reason to think that it came specifically out of the vaudeville circuit of um, of black vaudeville. Um, and while I do think it's comedic valences, I don't I don't mean to exclude them, but it's not really what I take up in the book. Um, lots of reasons for that, not least that uh, I think other people are better at the sonic valences that inform delivery of comedic timing and so forth. But really I'm looking at deadpan as um, a gesture, a gesture that's performed often through the face, but not exclusively through the face. Um, And the, uh, an important framing of it that I took from a Lauren Berlant essay on Pope L is um, she called it showing up to withhold. And I think that, um, yes, you can find it in all kinds of places because anytime anyone makes a point of showing up in order to not deliver on all the things that might be expected in that exchange, I think you can find deadpan there. Um, The question of literary deadpan is really interesting and I have some provisional answers, but I don't, as you say, take up the literary quite as much. But... um, one example I think might be something like um, autobiography of an ex-colored man where um, Johnson Johnson's title sort of promises a passing story. And in fact, the passing only occurs in the last couple sentences of the book. The whole book is actually about um, is about his his not passing there, his years as a as a black person. And then the the sort of salacious passing is just um, is just the mess of pottage at the very end. So I think that's an interesting and perhaps deadpan maneuver. Um, but I, I have thought less about it in the literary than in um, more embodied genres, including sculpture as as the visual medium, the visual arts medium I take up most uh, in addition to portraiture. Um, 
one other thing that might be useful to say quickly about it is that um, I, when I, when I talk about deadpan aesthetics, I mean something analogous to the ways that inscrutability functions within um, Asian and Asian American letters, which is to say that there's this um, kind of key term that encompasses both um, broader cultural narratives of, of quote unquote Asian inscrutability, which may or may not actually be what's happening in any given moment. That could be an inability of the audience to see rather than something that is in fact being performed, but sometimes it's performed. And I think when I talk about deadpan aesthetics, I mean a similar nexus between um, cultural impressions of Black inexpression and actual performances of Black inexpression and the messy, mutually imbricating territory that exists between those two things. Well, you know, just kind of selfishly, I, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in, in, in sort of you're not taking up uh, some of the comedic valences of, of, of deadpan, especially since, you know, you say that maybe it was sort of first generated in Black vaudeville, which would have been a space where the comic or at least sort of structures of irony would have been paramount. And then even the sort of example you just gave now, autobiography of an ex-colored man, um, seems to me, or is, I mean, even in James Weldon Johnson's own words, very much a kind of cruel joke being played upon his readers. Um, and so I wonder, he didn't say cruel, but he does say joke. <laughs> um, but I wonder, um, yeah, I, I mean, I wonder about that. And this is a selfish sort of desire to hear you, hear what you might have to say about deadpan and its relationship to humor. So for example, your book, your introduction opens with that uh, rich homie Kwam meme. And, you know, that's funny to me, you know, I'm sure it's funny to you. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm just, I'm a little, I'm a little curious, you know, and there's so many um, expressions of blackness, which aren't quite in expression, but are all, they tempt it. Like I'm thinking about the side eye or something that have entered into, you know, sort of culture writ large um, that are funny, right? Like there are forms of black in expression that, um, I think people now recognize as such, and because of that, it's taken on a kind of affect. Um, but I just, I do wonder a little bit about the the comedic, and you said something about, well, there are other people who are more sort of attuned to, to comic timing, but of course, comedy could also just provide a structure, right? Um, a structure through which a certain kind of expression is operating, a way of taking up contradiction, simultaneous contradiction or incongruity or, um, whatever it might be, clashing affects um, and so forth. So I'm just curious. I don't know. I'm just selfish. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a great question. And I think um, there's a lot to say about it. Some of it is, as I alluded to before, that, um, you know, you, you play you play to your strengths. And I feel like my strengths are that I'm a, a visual and kinesthetic thinker. And so the sample sets in my book just happen to be more visual and kinesthetic than um, than literary or uh, sonic or or what have you. Um, although I certainly hope the book sets up people to take up those other things in in new and exciting ways. But the other thing um, that I'll say is that while certainly deadpan can operate in um, in comedic expressive realms, and the side eye is a great example. One one motivation behind the book was my feeling like there were fewer tools uh, like a like a like a real dearth that i found sometimes frustrating to talk about um inexpressive blackness and the comedic often tips toward the expressive blackness that there's a ton of writing on and it's all great and valuable and i um in no way mean to take anything away from Black joy and exuberance through this project. But I did, I did find it frustrating that because so much of, uh, for, for many reasons, for a really long time, so much of Black cultural production or expression is automatically assumed to be loud and colorful and exuberant and funny and all of these things that um, whenever 
um, something operates in a different aesthetic mode, I felt like it immediately tipped into something closer to sociology, like what's interrupting the naturally expressive black subject, and that the the more minimal uh, expressive registers were never taken up as expressive registers, as aesthetic registers, they were taken up as um, evidence of problem. And, and so I wanted in part to reclaim um, more circumspect aesthetic registers for blackness. I don't think I'm the only one doing this by any means, but um, but in that way too, I feel like attention to the com comedic in some ways um, moves me away from that other preoccupation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I wonder if you could say something, you know, following that about what the language of performance studies enables for um for this project yeah great um one thing i think uh and this is also from the introduction um is that i in this book i use what i hope is a good um manifestation of sylvia winter's practice of decipherment which i inherited through Jose Esteban Munoz's work. I joke that all of us in minoritarian performance studies are the children of House Munoz. And, um, and I think that works well for minoritarian performance insofar as a deciphering practice as Winter describes it is more interested in, in what something does or how something works and what it means. And in order to leave some of the mystery around some of my figures, especially the historic figures who I could actually know nothing about. And I didn't want to just simply overwrite them with my suppositions of what their inexpressive thing meant. But I felt like I could, without doing that, analyze the effects of an overall aesthetic ecology within an image within a moment of cultural production that didn't necessarily um, depend on what the subject at the center of it was thinking or feeling but that could analyze a larger scene and still say something productive about affective and emotional registers that work through the aesthetic um, and I think you know, performance studies does, it's a, it's a discipline or interdiscipline or transdiscipline or whatever you want to call it that, that, um, that works well with deciphering practices for that, for that reason. Um, and yeah, I think it, especially when it comes to queer minoritarian uh, areas where, um, yeah, the other, the other thing maybe to say about this relatedly is that I, I don't think that in expression is necessarily a refusal of relation. Mm -hmm. um, after uh, Edward Lissant's Poetics of Relation, I very much still think there can be a relation in play, but it's a relation that, you know, there's a measure of withholding or protection or something isn't given and I don't want to just take it, <laughs> if that makes sense. So um, so I was looking for ways of respecting a degree of opacity while still engaging in what I thought was a really fascinating moment of performance or cultural production. Yeah, no, that's really, that's really fascinating. Um, well, let's, let's turn to your chapters. Um, your first chapter is titled Subjectivity and Self-Specialization, and there you take up portrait photography um, from the mid 19th century to the mid 20th century. So I wonder uh, what Black in expression is doing, is doing there and what your chapter has to tell us about it. Great. Um, yeah. So that chapter, I can actually give a funny anecdote about its origin. So um, at one point at, toward, at the end of the dissertation, as I was trying to figure out what would get refigured and I, I, I wrote the book mostly backwards. Like I started toward the end of it and, and worked my way toward the front. Um, and so chapter one was the last thing that I had written at the dissertation stage. And then chapter three got uh, added later. Um, and I, at that point I was having a conversation um, with Vincent Brown. where I was talking a little bit about my writing process, which tends to be very much um, 
up from objects. I, I connect to certain objects. I think something interesting is happening there. I sit with them, I write around them. And then out of an, a, amassing a bunch of those, I start to see threads, theoretical interventions that are that run through them. And so I'm very much um, not theory down, but object up toward theory. And I, I was describing this and he said, um, uh, oh, an empiricist. And I, well, I hope I didn't show it in the moment. I had like such a reaction of horror <laughs> to that because I think so for so many of us in black studies, right? Like the enlightenment is the root of a whole bunch of problems. And I, I very much, you know, had internalized that, that, um, but he, but he wasn't wrong and I knew he wasn't wrong. And, um, and so that really changed a lot of things that I was thinking about, or it deepened a lot of things I was thinking about in chapter one. And that chapter, um, yeah, the the photographic subjects range from the 19th century to um, 20th century, but it also makes these forays into more early modern history um, to think in particular around um, what uh, the theorist Janice Neary called specimen logics. And her book on specimen logic uh, specimen logics um, is especially around these um, images of of insects from the early modern period. It's a fascinating book, but um, but there's certain things in the ways that um, bugs come to be uh, exemplars of of the sort of specimen logic that that removes something from its environment that isolates it that renders one specific one in great detail in order to say something about all the rest of them that i really um you know we see those same logics at work in the agassiz stereotypes of enslaved black folks and then we mm. we see essentially these same things performed in in respectability photography and um as Jean-Michel Michelle Smith has pointed out the ways that Du Bois with his parasex position um, had narrated or through captioning the subjects that were meant to um, picture black respectability were really sort of disarmingly consonant with the ways that um, eugenicists documented their own things. So at the end of the day, and this I argue in, in chapter one, um, you know, it, it was perhaps always the case or recognized to be the case that the Black subject entered modernity as a sort of specimen. And, mm -hmm. and the other way that Black subjects could then reclaim, maybe, kind of problematically, modernity on their own terms was to perform themselves also as scientists. And really what we see happening in the portraiture of respectability is the subject simultaneously performing the positions of specimen and scientist. And while I think um, that's that's maybe not new, I think we often pay attention to the result like, oh, that, that successfully performs respectability or that doesn't. We haven't paid enough attention to the process by which that attempts to occur so um so yes that in a nutshell is chapter one yeah so for you for you deadpan is is crucial to that that sort of perform that simultaneous performance of, of scientists and specimen could you say a bit more about that yeah uh i think that the um how do i want to say okay so for one thing there's sort of the scientific detachment that comes from the um the performance of, of inexpression. Um, there's also the realization that this is in some ways um, uh, a performative that buttresses the ability of other information to come through. Um, I talk about this a little bit in an, in an earlier article, but when we look at um, portraiture, okay, so what do I want to say about this? So I think the face is the first place that we tend to look for effective or emotional information. But if you can't find your effective information within a face, what happens is not that you have no effective information. What happens is that you then gather it from other sources, right? And so if there's an inexpressive gentleman seated in an ornate chair with a Bible in one hand and a cane in another, 
you know plenty about him, right? But what you know comes through the cane, the Bible, the seat, not from his face. And um, and so I think that uh, in Black portraitures, one which, um, you know, maintained conventions of an expression longer than they needed to, and then also in... Um, moments like FSA photography, where um, documentarians dispatched in order to document the Black subject and often elected um, inexpressive subjects to picture. Um, and there, I can say more about reasons for that maybe in a moment. But in both of these, what we see is um, strategic mobilization of the surroundings that utilize an inexpressive face in order to mount their assertions. And in some, that is, um, you know, the the performance of respectability through props and atmosphere. Or on the other hand, um, many of these really well-meaning liberal um, artists mounted their cases around social inequality or social problematics around the Black subject by picturing them in inexpressive situations that highlighted um, the um, the lack of their material surroundings. So um, a slightly different usage, but with this really the same operations at play. Yeah, well, I'm curious about two things. I mean, one, you know, as you're talking, it's just tons of like a little reel of uh, James Van Der Zee photos are going through my mind. They're always so full of things but usually the subjects are, are inexpressive. Um, but also I was curious about the sort of boundedness. Um, the, why stop at 1950 or mid-century? Um, does something change in black portraiture, you know, um, due to sort of the beginnings of the civil rights movement or I'm just curious, does black really expression give way to something else? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think necessarily and in fact, the earlier dissertation version of this um, did include some um, Gordon Parks pictures, uh, so later. Um, I don't know that anything necessarily changed, although um, the advent of the Brownie camera and um, and the snapshot in, in general changed expressive registers of portraiture at least within the United States, and this begins to be beyond my area of expertise, but I do think um, on the African continent, for example, inexpressive portraiture lasted longer as a convention than than the, the slight smile that began to creep into all of our school photos, right? Um, uh, I do think that there's, um, in the later part of the, 60s and early 70s the the success question mark of the rights movements had had um also changed the way that the inexpressive subject sometimes read there's a much larger um bunch of factors at work here and i'm and i'm not a historian but i will say in the um in in boxing history for example which is one way that this project um first came about in the figure of Joe Lewis in the 30s, his inexpression was um, an, a more or less contractually obligated uh, subset of his performance of respectability in his manager's very concerted effort to um, have a non-threatening exemplar win uh, the Black championship that had been prohibited to Black boxers since the hyper-expressive Jack Johnson earlier, but by the 70s, when we have um, uh, the previously inexpressive in his younger days, George Foreman, um, Sonny Liston in the 60s, um, Frazier in some ways, these more inexpressive figures were narrated as menacing and not simply, um, you know, respectable. So, so something that is bigger than the than the operations um, at work in in this chapter did shift. I don't think it shifted entirely. Certainly, we still see inexpressive um, registers at work in respectability photography, but it begins to be a more fraught uh, performative. I think. 
This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, well, why don't we move on to your second chapter, um, which is entitled Minimalism and the Aesthetics of Black Threat. And I think that's a perfect kind of segue from your talking about sort of Joe Lewis and the manager's sort of desires vis-a-vis how um, his image circulated. Um, what is it about Black inscrutability? Why is it that it so often gets read as threatened? How does sort of your conception of deadpan interact with that, with that sort of yeah. dominant reading of Black, of Blackness? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know that I have a perfect answer for why, but I'll say it's been around for a really long time. And in that chapter, I go all the way back to um, Jefferson's uh, notes on the state of Virginia, in which he talks about, um, about the, the troubling to him uh, inability of of black uh, faces to to blush, and how how could he possibly then understand what's going on there? And and <laughs> right away, it's rhetorically tied to the threat of rebellion, right? And so so it's, it's a really long standing um, um, mess, right? Uh, and I don't I don't have a perfect answer to it, but I do think um, we. It, it feels important to me to uh, think through that, um, I don't know, that linkage and also to find moments that there's chinks in the linkage. So mm-hmm. that chapter, um, it, it takes up Michael Fried's uh, seminal art and objected essay in which he um he discusses this disdain for minimalist art, which he calls literalist art. And he doesn't like it because it feels to him too theatrical and it feels too anthropomorphic. It calls him into a relation in this way that he really doesn't like. Um, and uh, it looms in this uncomfortable way for him. Mm. And the thing that was striking to me about Freed's diagnosis of literalist artworks, um, aesthetic maneuverings, was its consonance with the ways that Black subjects are described as, um, you know, a kind of the subject-object um, mess that that Sidney Hartman and Yuri McMillan and others have talked about. Um, the um, the sort of looming threat contained within the black subject, the the call to relation that is uncomfortable for the white subject. Um, these things were all really recognizable to me from a really different context. And so um, I, in that chapter, then take up what, so if minimalist artwork, if the workings of minimalist artwork is, are consonant with the workings of the looming black body, how mm-hmm. can visual arts intervene in that or nuance that in some ways and I take up four artists in this three white or no sorry three black and one white um I think um you know in Adrian Piper's work from the 70s there's often a looming black subject but she insists on the subject's own um interiority and consciousness uh which freed of course does not attribute um, or like there's only maybe sort of a nefarious intention in the um, minimalist object, but, but I I think Piper does really interesting work nuancing the interiority of that. Um, I think Martin Purrier's objects loom and, and are minimalist in their lack of um, ornament, although they're beautifully handcrafted in this way that I think really diffuses any sense of threat in their looming. Um, I think that David Hammond's works maybe do loom and maybe do contain threat, but but to whom and why? So if we think of the 
hood that's famous from the cover of Citizen that is generally hung at about um, about at or or above human height. There's a um, I think that that reads perhaps as threatening to some people, but but to mm-hmm. others, I think this sort of jagged cut at the bottom of the hood, the abstention of the black figure in between read really differently to black subjects perhaps than they do to uh, white viewers. And then finally, I take up um, the figure of Robert Morris, who is a, a minimalist artist mm-hmm. and, and one of those minimalist artists who is considered canonical within a minimalist artwork to think about the ways that his artworks, um, I think mm-hmm. do in fact trade in a kind of uh, Black register of an expression, including at times the substitution of his body for um, uh, what had in other artworks been a Black figure. Sorry, was the answer really long? <laughs> no, no. I, that, that's, I'm just also looking at the images as you speak. And so, you know, I have your, your books sort of printed out. And so I'm just looking at images as you speak. Um, what I was curious about is, you know, you began our conversation talking about your interests and in what, in the sort of, in the process, right? The aesthetic process of deadpan. And so across these artists, I'm curious what deadpan does in relationship to this idea of black inscrutability as threat. And you've said that a little bit in your, in your answer already, but I wonder if you could give us another gloss on that just for listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, um... I think what's important about the artworks that I that I choose is that all of them mobilize the aesthetics of looming in some ways, and looming is really the um, the em- the embodied sense of threat that um, that Freed picks up on. And I'll say in my chapter, I do a little work to say by threat, I mean threat in the sense that Brian Masumi uses threat, and in that, importantly threat isn't real or actualized and can't be and still be threat because um, threat is this anticipatory um, uh, affect that surrounds the impression of a danger that has not yet arrived and can't arrive and because if it does then it's then it's something other than threat right and so in in mobilizing the terminology of threat I don't mean to suggest that the black figure is ever actually in fact a container of danger <laughs> because um I don't I don't think they are but I think the impression that they are is the thing that um that is persistent and that wreaks violence on black bodies all the time so um so mm-hmm. if looming is this is the embodied container of this thing called threat then where can we find artworks that in some ways, um, perform looming or loom, and then how do they, if they do, how do they nuance what looming is or what looming enacts? And so, um, so yeah, I get to use maybe Perrier as an example because I just love his work so much. Um, they're big. Some of them are vaguely, uh, they, they contain shapes that imply subjectivity. So they'll be vaguely head shaped or something, but they feel monumental. They're, um, I'm not a large person, but they're as big as I am and much wider. You know, they, they are not um, small objects. And one of the things that uh, Robert Morris talks about in his notes on sculpture is the ways that like small objects call bodies into intimacy, right? Like you, you want to touch, pick up like play with little things. These are not little things. They um they call your body into relation with that body in a certain kind of way. So they might be um in fact kind of looming things. But again when I look at a Perrier sculpture, mm. these are beautiful, self-contained, highly wrought, beautifully finished works that I at least can't even begin to sense how anyone would find them threatening. I find them so like placid and um, I want to be with them in a different kind of way. So um, so for Perrier, just to, I, and I think all of these artists do a different thing, but with Perrier, I would say he reclaims the prerogative of an object to loom while um, diffusing 
any sense of threat that's contained in it. No, that's great. No, thank you. Thank you for for humoring me there. Um, yeah, folks will have to pick up your book to see what you say about David Hammond's very much circulated in the hood um, kind of uh, piece of artwork. Um, but let's move on to, to chapter three. You said this is one of the new chapters that you drafted just for this book and it's called sort of opacity gradient. Um, and so I wonder what you could talk, you, you used this phrase that I like, you said you attempt to parse aesthetics of calibrated visibility and withholding by thinking through discrete points of visual saturation. So tell us about the opacity gradient. Yeah, great. So this is, um, this came about because uh, you know, I mentioned earlier feeling like sometimes we're, there's really this dearth of of um, vocabulary or ways of talking about um, more circumspect registers of of Black aesthetics. And one place that I think we see this, and for such good reason, I want to, you know, I want to reiterate, I think there's really good reasons for all the things that, um, that I'm um, trying to push on a little bit. But on the one hand, um, through the really important work of Daphne Brooks and others, we have this uh, sort of opacity, this um, this really difficult to discern, sort of confounding black subject who um, is present, but in some ways um, interrupts our our ability to know them, and really important. On the other hand, we have fugitivity, where the black subject just like absconds, they disappear. We don't, and then, but I think for again really good reasons, the field of black studies in general operates with constant reference to these two poles, opacity, fugitivity, opacity, fugitivity. And um, gosh, I just felt like there has to be a bunch of stuff in between those two things, right? Um, and so this was my attempt to parse out what some of those things might be. Um, so I think on the one hand, we have uh, performances of, of really dense presence. Um, and my example for that is uh, Simone Lee's beautiful, again, monumental sculptures. And then on the other hand, um, something that I'm calling transparency, not in the way of, of, um, of Glissant's transparency, by which he means something like self-evidence. Um, but what I mean is when actually you're right there and nobody sees you, they just see right through you. Um, mm. And uh, interestingly, the figure who I used to locate that is um, this um, choreographer, dancer, actor, Cheryl Sutton, who was everywhere for a moment and seems to have been completely forgotten, not completely forgotten. She was not that long ago on stage in another Robert Wilson um, piece, but um, but I don't think she has, we haven't given her her flowers and she deserves them. But, um, but as uh, these writers around Robert Wilson's um, work, she, she did a bunch of independent choreography. She performed in Paris and at the Sculpture Garden in MoMA. She performed alongside uh, Mintanaka and, um, um, Trisha Brown, just all these really critical figures. There's a book written about her by this like Czech artist. Just she was everywhere for a moment. But um, but uh, the the ways that um, this one author describes it, and other people said essentially the same thing. But um, he said, you know, everyone who Robert Wilson worked with had had a shtick, and and hers was uh, sort of um, floating or gliding that she could move so slowly that. Um, you you couldn't see her moving <laughs> or something that you could look right through her into the ocean behind. Um, I don't know exactly how this performative works, but I do realize that there's there's a um, an accrual of consonant descriptions, and I think in general, those of us uh, who are racialized recognize the ways that these um like the the most transparent and the most dense performances maybe kind of bend around closer to one another again but there is a difference in feeling between um someone seeing you and mm -hmm. taking you for granted and someone looking right through you like you're not there at all right sometimes there it's a subtle difference but it's a difference and i think um, those are the extreme points on either end. And then between them, 
Um, and again, I use visual artworks to help me parse these techniques, but there's something that's like sheerness. There's something that's like obscurance. And then there's um, something that's sort of away. And um, that my, uh, some of the artists, some of the, I, you know, I generally have a couple of touchstones in each of these, but um, uh, obscurance, I talk about uh, the ways that Titus Kafar sort of pictures, but um often as something kind of occluding his black subject for awayness. I talk about Lorna Simpson um, and uh, the ways that there's uh, often like the back of a black subject or a sort of um, a subject who, uh, who often words will um, narrate in some ways their presence, but they're not droscopically available. Mm-hmm. Um, and sheerness I locate in a couple of different artists, but um yeah, that's that's the broad strokes yeah. of that chapter. Yeah. That's great. You know, while you're speaking, and I think this will, will lead us into to chapter four, which is titled Excess and Absence, where the Negro believes, and then there's a there's a sort of blank. Um, I think this will lead us into that, but I'm curious about kind of in expression that's through a kind of very glossy form of expression, which I think is is, is, you know what I mean? Because, you know, as you've been speaking about how people sort of respond to various forms of Black and expression, they also respond that way to Black laughter, right? It's unreadable <laughs> to most people. And that unreadability is so, it's what's discomforting about, about Black laughter. Um, and so maybe uh, maybe that'll lead us into chapter four. And, and yeah, you can unfold uh, what it is you want to tell us about, about the stage. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um... The two works I take up there, uh, one was written um, by the Korean American playwright Young Jin Lee, but together with her all black ensemble cast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important that, they, that it was a participatory uh, process of devising. And then um, Neighbors by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, which um, I'm not going to remember the exact quote, but he basically said, like, I, you know, I didn't ever expect this work to be performed. Um, both of these are uh, works that incorporate pretty directly conventions of minstrelsy in different ways. Um, Young Jean Lee sort of takes that tripart subject of the minstrel stage that coalesced around the 1840s with its opening um, dance number and then um as a skit based thing and then a longer dramatic um plantation scene but she makes it into a parlor drama um and uh black stereotype runs throughout that work uh similarly brandon jacobs jenkins has this work in which um a, a the crow family who are minstrel performers played by black actors in blackface um, they move in next to a biracial family. Father is black, mother is white. There's a biracial daughter. Um, the father is a classics professor at um, a university. And then um, sort of uh, interfamilial tension unfolds between um, like what kind of, of black people these are or, or want to perform to be. Um, and meanwhile, the play is interspersed with um, these sort of interludes of of just the performances of the most over-the-top racial stereotype imaginable um, by the Crow family. Um, And what struck me with both of these works is the ways that um, Blackness as staged is so excessive as to sort of (laughs) self-evacuate. And like the minimalist artwork where... um, this, there was a essay from um, a Coburn Mercer volume uh, several years ago um, by a woman named um, Angelie Morrison, who talks about the ways that um, there are a few stock responses to uh, monochrome. One is to say that there's nothing there, and the other is to search out some tiny bit of differentiation and claim that that's the thing that's important. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, and there's a there's a long history of the monochrome mobilizing essentially jokes about the unseeability of blackness in darkness. Um, and so reading again the sort of visual arts conventions out of monochrome um, 
and the sort of excessive evacuation that can happen in these plays argue that, um, yeah, that, that uh, there there is a way, and I think it can misfire. I should say that too, it can misfire. But I think there's a way in which um, excessive performances of stereotype that are so bombastic, so over the top, can, can sort of, at the end, they start to mean nothing. Like they don't, there's no meaning there. That that thing that you're showing me isn't mm-hmm. isn't a thing that I can recognize as actual blackness. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm I'm interested in the in the workings there. Now I to say I don't. There's no guarantee that every audience member is gonna, is going to get there. Um, but I think they take great pains uh, to make everything so excessive that that. Um, that it's very likely. I'll say too that um, part mm. of the way I realized this, I opened the chapter with this, is um, early days when I would tell people, oh, I'm working on um, Black and expression, people would over and over again say like, ah, yes, we wear the mask, um, which is a, a poem that, uh, but the first line of that is we wear the mask that grins and lies. So there's expression built in from the first, but somehow this something happens, right? Where we we take the mask and then everything that happens underneath it, we just, we forget how much emotion was there or something, but there's a really interesting play that I think can occur. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious if you could say just a, a tiny bit more about this uh, kind of self-evacuation that's happening. Cause you're saying nothing's there and you mean that in the sense of like a black subjectivity or a black subject. Um, so that evacuation is being mobilized to do some other kind of work or is it being mobilized to, yeah, yeah. I'm just curious about how how you're reading that. Um, yeah, certainly. I'd say in terms of black subjectivity, um, there's what's the best way of explaining this. So, um, I mean, perhaps even as big as the racial category writ large, that um, everything that we think it's rooted in, mm-hmm. you double down on it, it becomes absurd. Um, it manifests in these plays, most particularly through the sort of container of character. So what is the racial construction writ large and what is the individual subjectivities manifestation of it is perhaps a little harder to parse. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I, it, it's that's maybe an open question of of the chapter that I don't I don't think I get to the answer of like of um how how big that what are the outer limits of that evacuation but i think they certainly have the potential to speak to really large <laughs> really large constructions of racialization um and not merely the the character subject yeah i mean you know why i ask this because you know i do know uh i've actually seen some of uh brandon jacob jenkins's work and and, you know, there's there's blackface or whiteface and all of it. There's always sort of absurd. I mean, I know you know this. And so, you know, I, I, I guess I don't know what I think about his work yet in terms of it, what it means, you know. And I know that's not what you're after in this book. But I just, I was curious because there's sometimes when, you know, I've seen The Octoroon is the play that stands out most in my mind because I've seen it most recently. And, yeah, I mean, like, there are times when the enslaved people are in on the joke and there are times when they're the butt of it. And then, you know, and so I was just curious if you had a read about that, that, that line between this sort of excessive blackness sort of tipping into sort of a kind of evacuation, but maybe doing this other kinds of critical work vis-a-vis, like you said, constructions of race or sort of apprehension, but even just sort of intervening in the process of, of apprehending race as such, right. Of mm-hmm. recognizing blackness. That's not sort of phenotypic. Um, I don't know. I was just curious if you if you had things for that. Yeah, maybe one other thing I'll say about that ever so briefly is that both of those plays incorporate, as does the Octoroon in a in a slightly different way, but they incorporate moments of sort of direct audience address. So it isn't merely what you see unfolding on this on the stage that is um that you can look at that and be and say, oh, isn't that isn't that an interesting critical intervention, which it is. But there are moments where the actors turn around and look right at you, mm-hmm. <laughs> you sitting in the seat, which in the U.S., of course, majority white audiences, uh, but not exclusively and whatever. And so so there's always this sort of um, um, 
maybe at most generous invitation and at least generous accusation or something about like, about like, and so now what? And, and, and you seated there who are, um, so I, I think that to me is a really important component of the kind of intervention and kind of evacuation that happens is that um, it isn't, the audience is not allowed to passively consume what happens. Um, I think the Octoroon or an Octoroon is especially um, um, multivalent in that the moments of audience invitation are offer a wealth of ways in, some of which are deeply troubling. But I think in that case, I've written a little bit about this um, in an in an article that takes up an Octoroon and Underground Railroad game. Um, but that that in those cases. Um, audience members are really invited to watch each other as well as the stage. Um, I think that's less the case with uh, the shipment and neighbors. I think that's more, um, you know, an individual address to you in the seat, uh, a a sort of check in with your with your feelings and intellect, not so much the observation of of one another. But I think um, in either case, the moment of audience address is an important component of it. Okay, well, thank you. I'll have to check out your Anaktarun essay, and I'm happy to know about it. Um, your final chapter is, uh, is entitled Buster Keaton's Black Deadpan. Um, so tell us about that. Yeah, great. Um, so Buster Keaton uh, was a film star of the silent film era. His heyday was around 1928, I want to say. Um, and he grew up performing in uh, on on sort of he, he, his family had a troupe, uh, the the three Keatons, and he performed on medicines show stages sort of traveled around um all of his biographies and autobiographies are full of lore some of which is probably true some of which is probably not but um supposedly harry houdini nicknamed him buster after he fell down a flight of stairs or something and um you know it's it's that kind of book Uh, his family did in fact travel with the houdinis for a bit but um so that era of stage production is, um, of course, one in which minstrel conventions were wide. And there's pictures of uh, his father in blackface. And then later on in his career, there's pictures of of Keaton in blackface as well. Um, But what I'm most interested in is not the moments where he uh, adopted a black persona through blackface. And he, of course, he also performed other racial caricatures. Um, But moments that he, I think, adopted what was recognizable as as a cultural perception of black embodiment. And what I mean by that in particular is sort of doubled insensibility that was both rooted in the in the physical insentience of supposed physical insentience of blackness, such that black people could be hurt without consequence, that it wouldn't really hurt them all that much. Still see this in the doctor's office, right? It hasn't gone anywhere. Um, and also there's sort of intellectual insentience that that they, you know, maybe it takes you five seconds to yell out because your brain's so slow to register that it that it doesn't um and that also his inexpressive face allowed that um, sort of double down on the on the sense that he, he could be thrown around, that he could act, like enact all these ridiculously dangerous stunts with no real consequence. That it that it didn't hurt. That it didn't um, that that he like staged blackness could perform um, what Robin Bernstein and um, her excellent book, Racial Innocence, takes up with the um, the Raggedy Ann doll, whose roots were the scarecrow from um, The Wizard of Oz, which was best known to Americans through the stage. And I think that that same stage lineage of black minstrel indestructibility and insentience, in fact, informs his uh, sort of deadpan performances. Oh, that's excellent. 
All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, I want to, I want you to leave us with just one last nugget before we sort of close out the interview. So is there sure. anything else you want to tell listeners about deadpan or about your work? Um, feel free. Oh gosh. That's a big question. <laughs> I, don't know. I, don't know. I don't know. Um, um, I don't know. I, it, it's, the book is still pretty new. So um, I know you said too, that there's an opportunity to help reframe things, but I'm still excited to learn how it will land. I think I've, I've done um, just two or three book talks, um, one, one online that was a class visit and then two sort of in the world. I'll tell you about my book. So, um, so it's still kind of early days, but um, I'm excited about it. It was, it was a joy to write. Um, I hope it lands well. I don't know. Do you have any other questions about it? Uh, no, I mean, I think you have. I mean, one of the things I'm, I'm curious about, and I do hope that people invite you to come talk about this book, is it's just your kind of wonderfully expansive archive. I mean, I know you're sort of in the world of performance, but even there, I mean, you are in a bunch of different performance spaces. Um, and so it would be lovely to hear about how you arrive at your objects. I know you gave us a kind of a preview of that by saying you're an object up person and you're just kind of drawn to things. But I will say that I was pretty... Uh, yeah, impressed and, and amazed by, by just the breadth of your, of your archive in this book. Thank you. Um, maybe one other thing I can say about that, because some of it is, as I said, sort of intuitive, right? Like you just, there are things that you respond to. And I am a believer in, I'm going to butcher the quote, but, um, but there's a wonderful old Martha Graham quote about how like no one else sees the world's can enter the world in the way that you can because we're all these unique beings and and that that's really where our strength lies and so um so yeah I do think it's important that we all we connect to what we connect to and we should you know take up the, whatever that is and then figure out why um so I don't um I have never really fought my intuition about oh there's something here um but it's also the case that um I just, a student was asking me about because uh, yeah my my bibliography is kind of bonkers I just like it's people from everywhere um but the the thing with that is I think um I have a pretty instrumental relation to theory there those theorists that you hold close you know like I think anyone coming out of black studies we all you know Du Bois is in there I'm pretty Foucauldian like there are these people that just like they are your your deeply held people but after that I tend to have a pretty instrumental relationship to theorization which I think is often is not pretty dispositional and so you figure out here's this object that I think I see something in and the thing thing that I think I see is x um who else sees kind of like this ever in anything right and then you and then they become part of the theoretical posse that you bring to a particular um object so that can lead anywhere and then off also as with any scholar like right you read the thing that you're drawn to and then you find the the footnote or the one other image that you chase down and that opens a whole other world and so there's there's a measure of that serendipity as well but um but yeah I, I do just think uh I I couldn't do anything other than have a sort of chaotic <laughs> relationship to um just to, to source and to theory and um yeah I just want to bring it all in and throw it all together and see what I was going to say expansive expansive not chaotic expansive <laughs> thank you um, but I do have another kind of bonus question and just because you just um name checked the boys and I'm curious, you know, I ask this question of my students all the time, and I ask it of, of, of close friends or scholars that I just happen to be in long conversation with. Um, I'm curious about what you think about double consciousness in our present moment, if it's still sort of um, a useful a useful way to capture sort of Black consciousness and its instantiation in this country. And then I'm curious about it in relationship to deadpan, because I find that I'll just say that first. And I, I've gotten wildly different responses to this question. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But yeah, I'm curious what you might say just because you you said his name and I was I'm so surprised yeah. to hear you say him in relationship to your work, to be honest. So Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean I do think that the sort of um self specimenization of chapter one is very in line with the Du Boisian um view of of like yourself and then yourself as other people see you. Um 
And I think, you know, the, the answer to its overall relevance, you know, it, it probably a little bit depends and probably already always has a little bit depended. I will say it was absolutely part of my own upbringing, like deeply held, right? Like I think, um, <laughs> that, like, yeah, yes. I, I, <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I do think like that, that, you know, every once in a while, as I say in some, some footnote somewhere, you know, every once in a while there has its, um, sort of, you know, you were raised black when, um, jokes and, and one of those is always about like, fix your face and fix your face is nothing but a Du Boisian, like other people see you, right? Like, and yeah. so I, I do think it, for me, it's still, it still weighs heavily. Now I do, I do think there are probably, um, people who, whose upbringing or, or whose, um, uh, what do I want to say? Whose upbringing or whose disposition for lack of a better term is less, um, conscripted by respectability politics. Um, but I, but the thing that I'll say about that too is maybe, um, but once it's in there, I don't know how to get it out again. Um, hmm. Okay. Yeah, I guess. And I think I can be self-aware and be like, oh, this is, this is that. But I, I think it's a really hard, if it's second sight, I think it's a really hard vision to lose. It just gets in there. Well, that'll, that'll be something I'll have to ask you post interview about then. Um, But thank you so much for, for speaking with me today. Thanks so much for having me.